Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is writer Jamel Brinkley, author of A Lucky Man, Stories, uh, published in 2018 from Grey Wolf Press. A Lucky Man is a, was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Story Prize, the John Leonard Prize, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, and the Hurston Rice Legacy Award. And it was a winner of a Penn Oakland Award and the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Brinkley was the 2016-17 Carol Houck Smith Fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing and a 2018 through 2020 Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. He teaches at the Iowa Writers Workshop. On April 14th, 2021, Brinkley will give a virtual reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Jamel, so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a writer. Um, <clears throat> well, I was born in Virginia, raised in New York City, in the Bronx and Brooklyn. And um, I guess I was just one of those kids who sought refuge in his imagination. Um, I was always a big reader following my mother's example. She was a big reader. Um, she's the person who dragged me to the Mott Haven branch of the, of the public library um, when I was very young. And um, reading was where I felt really safe and full as a person. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I started sketching characters, um, a friend of mine and I, when we were kids, we played these role-playing games where you just make up characters and the other person will put that character through their paces, sort of comic book based. Um, from there, I wrote poetry for a while, actually, none of it very good. Um, but then very, very slowly, I started writing fiction until maybe eight, seven or eight years ago. Um, writing was kind of at the margins of my life. So the volume begins with an epigraph from Carl Phillips' poem, If a Wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between God and luck is that luck, when it leaves, does not go far. The idea is to believe you could almost touch it. Could you say a little bit about why you chose that epigraph and how you think it introduces the volume? Yeah. Um, luck when it leaves does not go far. I think there's something um, <clears throat> tantalizing, <clears throat> even painfully so, about your luck, your fortune, the good things that happen to you, um, leaving you and being just out of reach. <laughs> you know, um, you feel like you can still see it, like it's still a presence in your life, even though it has kind of left you. So I wanted every story in the collection to have a combination of um, just the general difficulties of life, the sadnesses of life, um, but also the joy of life and those, those, those lucky moments that we all experience, no matter what our station is. So <clears throat> for me, the, the, the epigraph was a way to um, both register that presence of luck while also acknowledging that it's, it is for many of us at many times far away. So uh, given that, would you mind reading a little bit from the title story, A Lucky Man? Not at all. 
<clears throat> when Lincoln met Alexis 22 years earlier, they were equals. He was as handsome as she was beautiful and bright. And despite their age difference, he had as much to expect from the coming years as she did. Lincoln courted her in Richmond with a passion rooted in his certainty about himself. He had been a good student and had excelled at boxing and football. His life had been full of prizes, trophies, and scholarships. He had had more than his share of attention from women and had enjoyed the warmth and cheer of many men. He thought often about the question of what lay ahead in his life, but when he tried to see its exact outlines, he couldn't. It was indistinct with light. It had been this way with her, too. With other girls, there was no limit to how long his eyes could feast on the shape of legs glistening in stockings, with a coy retreat of a trembling hand, or on the flash of tongue in their laughing mouths. But looking at Alexis Campbell was like gazing into the sun. After just a few moments, he had to turn away. At Garfield's bar, he would tell his buddies how it hurt to look at her. And they would agree, mistaking his words for their usual hyperbole about women. On one of those nights at Garfield's, it occurred to him briefly that love was pain. When he was engaged to Alexis, and during their first years of marriage, his friends would also tell him how lucky he was. But this was said as a joke. Lincoln would say thank you and agree, would tell them how grateful he was for her. But this wasn't true. He deserved her. This was what he believed, and he knew this was what his friends believed in. A man of a kind should get what he deserves, and a man like and if a man like him couldn't get a woman like her then something was terribly wrong with the world do her friends tell her she's lucky lincoln wondered has her mother told her to give thanks for her man she might be saying it now as they picked out plums and nectarines at the fruit market or sat out on the porch shelling peas but surely this was foolish thinking just as foolish as thinking their daughter, Tamika, would spend these years breaking the hearts of any eager Georgetown boy who wasn't like her father. Lincoln came to understand that this had always been a part of his vision for himself, to have children who adored him, a son who resembled and worshipped him, a daughter for whom no other man would ever measure up. This was part of what he couldn't see before he married. But there was no son, and the years of Tamika's life had marked his decline. She had grown up watching it, his professional gambles with the boxing gems, and the attempts at training and managing had failed. His charm and stature no longer earned him opportunities, and in New York he had no reputation. He was lucky, he knew, to have his job at Tilden, steady and respectable work. But years ago, he and his wife had deserved each other. Time had not treated them equally. Why did he expect otherwise, though? 
with any two people, one would get the brunt of it. And time had hit him worse than any beating he had ever seen in the ring. He felt it had brutalized him. But one day, his wife's looks would go. Creases would line her face, the skin there would loosen and thin. Pouches would form under her eyes, maybe little dewlaps like his under the jaw. And her mind, it would start to slip and show weakness too. Everything cracks eventually. But when? How long would it be his good fortune to have her? How long until he could just plain have her again? Her smooth face. Even after all these years, he longed for it. To rub his cheek against hers and breathe hot words into her hair. There had been no diminishment of that feeling. He still had those appetites and she did too. Yet, he also felt the urge to press the sharps of his teeth against her face, to bite down and place the first deep crack in it. But Lincoln was a man with luck. Yes, he still had it. And <clears throat> his friends had said so and they were right. Good fortune can change in an instant, however, or it might never, but whatever it does has nothing to do with you. For years it had persisted in following him. It went home from work with him, lived with his family, claimed a space between him and his wife in their bed. She still had her light, but his was his luck. If it left him, she would too. No one would blame her, not her girlfriends, nor her mother, nor their daughter. Maybe his friends had been wrong earlier. Maybe Lincoln's luck had already abandoned him. His wife was gone for now, after all. Or maybe Lincoln was the one with wrong notions. Maybe slumped in his chair at the desk, unable to muster the little strength it took to hold in his belly. It was his luck that he was alone with. Thanks so much for that reading, Jamil. It's such a great story and such beautiful writing. Um, there are so many things that are clear, even in this passage, that are characteristic of your work. So let's start with um, the focus on Black men and boys. Mm -hmm. Almost all of the stories are focused on Black men and boys. Um, but it's also really striking to me how um, various these characters are, how unique each of their particular situations and predicaments are. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about, on the one hand, you know, why focus on black men and boys, but also on the importance of showing how varied their experiences are, how different all of them are from each other. Yeah, um, when I'm writing any story, I always start with the particular. So my characters, I try as much as possible to approach them in their full complexity and their full mystery. Um, as I was writing these stories, I never thought once that I was writing a collection about Black men. That just didn't occur to me. Um, I think that the collection, as the stories that gathered into the collection are a reflection of what my obsessions were at the time that I wrote them. Um, I was very interested in writing about fraternal relationships. Um, writing about male friendship 
Um, sometimes the ways that your friends, your, your platonic friends can be the love of your life. Um, that's what I was very interested in. For some reasons having to do with my own experience and other reasons that I probably can't even account for. Um, but over the two or three years that I wrote, that I drafted these stories, um, these are the ones that cohered. Um, there were a few stories I wrote during that time that fell out of the collection because they didn't work with its focus. But I feel absolutely sure that this is a reflection of obsessions that I wasn't even 100% conscious of um, at the time of writing. So although almost all the stories focus on black men and boys, um, the penultimate story, Wolf and Rhonda, devotes mm -hmm. a significant amount of attention to the subjectivity of Rhonda. Mm -hmm. She's the sort of, there are a number of female characters in the volume who you do attend to, but she seems to get more of your attention, more of the narrative's attention than in any of the other stories. Will you say a little bit about how she, why she arose to prominence in that story for you? Yeah, um, part of the occasion for that story was hearing someone say that um, it's typically a bad, bad idea to write a short story from two different points of view. And often when I hear things like that, I take it as a personal challenge. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> I started off writing the story with Wolf. Um, but when Rhonda emerged as a character, it, it felt like another kind of challenge, one that I'd issued to myself, I suppose. I think I was aware of my tendency to write male characters. And um, I took this as a challenge to really try to focus um, the story's attention on her. And, you know, I think of this story as, as, as the story kind of crosses, the two characters cross each other. Um, Wolf is sort of focused on the past. He's looking backwards. And Rhonda, in her own very strange um, particular way, is looking ever forward. She wants to forget the past, um, even as she's still, you know, drawn by it. Um, and I just thought she was a fascinating character. Um, thinking of someone who just really wants to make her life without reference to the things that, that she suffered as a younger person. Well, the, the, you're, I mean, she, you create her with such um, depth and authenticity. It's really fascinating. I mean, um, it, you definitely show that it's possible for a, a male writer to uh, <laughs> uh, write about the, so you rose to that challenge well. Um, on the topic of point of view, as you said, you know, the challenge, you can't have multiple points of view in the same narrative. The volume sort of oscillates between first person narrators and third person narrators. Can we say a little right. bit about that vacillation, why, why that works for you and, and how you figure out which way to go with a particular mm. story? Yeah, that's a great story, a uh, great question. Um, I think, <clears throat> you know, when, when I first started writing stories, my instinct always was to write in first person. Um, I wanted something about the voice, um, which I thought was a, an immediate path to a certain kind of intimacy. But the more I learned about writing, the more I learned that that isn't necessarily true, um, that often, characters don't know themselves well enough to supply the intimacy that, that you may want from a, from a first person story. Um, and so I started to force myself to explore um, third person and the possibilities there. Um, 
that said, I still love, I love both. I love close third, I love first person. And I see them both as um, supplying constraints that I have to invent around in order to tell the whole story. So if a, story, if a character is unable to, to see or to fess up about something, um, or if a character has certain limitations, it's my job as the writer to still figure out how to tell the whole story. And I like that, that challenge very much. So you, you've just been speaking about the intimacy between the writer and the character. The volume is deeply concerned with questions of intimacy between its characters as well. Yes. Um, but one of the many striking things about the volume is, is how intimacy cohabits in these stories with distance and alienation. And in, in sometimes in the most striking conjunction, you know, that paradox of sometimes when people are really close to each other in the stories, they also seem quite distant from each other. That's right. Can you say a little bit more about that? striking and strange quality in, in the work? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a, a seminar on intimacy this semester at the University of Iowa. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the many things that we're, we're sort of discovering is that intimacy is a paradox. Um, sometimes intimacy is quite harmful um, because it may violate your boundaries. Um, and often intimacy isn't about characters being you know, pressed up against each other um, in a tangible way. Often intimacy is about maintaining um, what feels like a comfortable space between, you know? So it's about finding a certain amount of distance that feels good, that's intimacy. That charged space between characters can be um, what defines intimacy. So intimacy just has all these different modes and um, moods. Um, and, I, and I think I am very much interested in its paradoxes, in its contradictions, which happen to be the things I'm interested in, in terms of any individual character. Um, so yeah, I'm very interested in those moments when gestures of care, for instance, um, can be received as gestures of harm, you know, simply because one sense of intimacy or one sense of boundary has, has been violated. Um, it's all very interesting to me. So, so, um, you mentioned that you you uh, grew up in New York and in, in Brooklyn and the Bronx, and this is a volume that's very located in that same in those same locations. Right. So let's talk a little bit about place in the volume. Yeah. Obviously, the Bronx and Brooklyn, and very specific places in the Bronx and Brooklyn, are foregrounded in different stories. Um, so say a little bit about the importance of that place, that that geographical location for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I would say a few things. Part Part of the importance is personal. Um, it is where I grew up. It, it is where my first powerful memories were, were formed in those two places. Um, and so in a way, the, the versions of those places in the Bronx and Brooklyn in my collection are a little bit a part of my own personal mythology. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if they ever really existed in the way that I depict them, um, but it's the way that I remember them, the way that I experienced them. And that's what I was trying to capture. Um, I think I'm also capturing, for the most part, New York of a certain era. Um, so not the New York of 2021. Um, a lot of the stories are from an older New York, the 1990s, the early 2000s. Some of the stories touch on the ways that gentrification is, is changing New York City. So that some of that is in there. Um, 
But for each of these stories, you know, I, I really wanted to attend to place as carefully as possible because place for me is one of the things that sets character to scale. And if you get the place right, that means you have a container in which your, your fiction can, can heat up. I love that uh, image of container because the stories are also equally interested in, in other kinds of places or other kinds of spaces, in particular, the spaces of apartments. I mean, for anyone who's lived in New York and in Brooklyn or the Bronx, your life is so centered around an apartment. And there's all these different apartments in the volume, and each of them is very distinctive. And that's one of the things I think that's, that's really a, a kind of New York quality to the volume is how carefully you render these apartments where these characters live and how these apartments reflect them. I'm thinking of, of Micah's apartment, for example, in mm -hmm. Infinite Happiness. That's a, that's a really striking one. And also, mm -hmm. um, uh, there, I mean, there are, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the elevator up to the apartment um, uh, for um, uh, everything the mouth eats, yes. I think is the one, right? Um, yes. So say a little bit more about that aspect, that those places, not not the, not the you know, not Brooklyn and the Bronx, but the places in the Brooklyn and the Bronx that are so important. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up Micah's apartment. Um, I remember being, being a younger man, you know, and sort of seeing people's apartments, sort of for the first time, like people my age, my peers' apartments. And there's a way in which you know, your, your apartment is, is an extension of yourself. It's part of your adornment. It's part of your declaration of who you are. Um, and so for Micah, I really wanted to, to get his space, which, you know, the narrator has, has of course, all these um, snarky feelings about. Um, but, you know, really capturing the ways in which people are, are so attentive to the place that they occupy and the place that they invite others into as a declaration of who they are. Um, you know, and some of the other apartments, I think it's just so important to get the ways in which those particular spaces shape the dynamics of the people who live in them. So for instance, the, the apartment in um, Juve, um, in which it's, it's a small cramped apartment, the walls are thin, you can sort of hear what's going on in, in every room of the apartment, you can probably hear all the neighbors. Um, and I wanted to make that dramatically significant. And part of my process of writing that story actually was making the, the cramped kind of porousness of that apartment less adjectival and making it more dramatic. You know, not just saying it was these things, but showing how it affects the way that the members of that family interact with each other. That was a really important part to developing that story. So you mentioned Jouvet, and uh, that's the first of the stories, and there are a couple of other stories that are about relationships between brothers and I'm thinking of Jouvet and everything the mouth eats I think are the most important and both of those stories are about brothers who are alienated from each other mm -hmm. who are on a journey uh I mean they're they're both they're both on a journey they're sort of on a journey together or at least mm -hmm. uh, uh next to each other but um but they 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 seem to get somewhere in those stories. Both by the end of both of those stories, it seems as if there's some kind of reconciliation or closer approach between these two brothers. Mm -hmm. And the the way that you've rendered these relations between brothers, it's um it's one of the really striking things about the volume is the richness and the tension in these fraternal relationships, but also mm -hmm. in this sort of um urge that 
ultimately comes to the fore of a desire for reconciliation or a desire for intimacy between these brothers and how the, the, the main character in each of those comes to realize this thing at the end of the story that, that, that there's something that their brother has for them that they didn't realize was there. Say a little yeah. bit about the fraternal in the volume. Yeah, you know, I, th I think it's common to think of conflict in terms of oppositional forces or in terms of these binaries that go against each other. Um, but in fact, and this is touching a little bit back on the, the topic of intimacy, in fact, much conflict comes from the things that you have in common, <laughs> things that you share. Um, so what's fascinating to me about brothers, I have a brother. Um, one of the things that's fascinating to me about brothers is that you have so much shared experience that is often felt and remembered quite differently and have quite different effects. You know, I, I can think of casual conversations I've had with my brother about specific instances where we'll remember things differently. Or if we do remember it the same way, the way it affected us is quite different. Um, and so I think that that sort of intensity of shared experience with an equal intensity of, of um, very different interpretations <laughs> um, leads to that tension that you're talking about, you know, where these characters are kind of pressed together um, by circumstance, by experience, um, by relation, but just cannot agree. <laughs> and that lack of agreement, I think, is, is quite interesting and, and um, part of what I want to explore in those stories. And if they get anywhere, I, I do agree that there are, there are these moments of, of recognition. Typically, the older brother is recognizing something in the, in the younger brother. Um, but I also wanted those moments to feel really fragile, really tenuous and you're not quite sure if they're going to last, but the important thing is that you were able to achieve that moment. That uh, feeling of precarity or tenuousness that you've just spoken of in the relationships between the brothers, it's also a, a quality that I noticed in the endings of a number of the stories, that mm -hmm. these stories, uh, the, the, the endings are quite powerful. You know, they're quite resonant endings. They, they really strike you as an ending, but they're also often ambiguous and open-ended and sometimes unresolved. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the way you think about endings in your stories. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think that I, I tend to think that an ending is not a thing in and of itself. It's the result of everything else in the story. Um, it's conditioned by everything else in the story. All the threads of the story being pulled through um, in a choral way. Um, or like a chord, you know, so that you're sounding all the story's notes at the same time, um, or as many of them as possible at the end. Um, but I also have a, a really great suspicion of, of epiphanic moments. Um, you know, the sudden realization that's going to change your life. <laughs> um, but I do like the feel of, of a potential realization, even if it doesn't last, even if you move past it, even if it's fleeting. So I think what I'm trying to capture in those moments is sort of a, a hard-won moment of, of wisdom, realization that you instinctively feel is probably not going to last, but that makes the moment 
no, no less valuable, no less important. Um, and that, that's really what I'm aiming for. I, I love um, the ambiguities um, in fiction. That's, that's really where I'm aiming, what I'm aiming for when I'm writing. So we're coming to the end of our time. I just have a couple of other questions. The first is, can you say something about what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm working on another collection of stories, which is um, much further along than the other thing I'm working on, which is a short novel. Um, but if I have it my way, I'll have another collection out as, as my next book. And then my last question, and I hope it's not an unfair one, is there anything that you've read recently that really struck you that you'd like to recommend? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, much of my reading lately has been um, for class. So um, a little bit of, you know, stuff that's fresh off, fresh off the presses. Um, but, you know, some things that I've read for class recently that I'm reread or, or just read and, and loved. Um, I reread Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. I just fell in love with it all over again. Um, Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks is, is quite gorgeous, um, really wonderful. Um, and one other book that I can mention, I would say, is All on Hagar's Children by Edward P. Jones. Thanks so much for those recommendations. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I've been speaking with writer Jamel Brinkley, author of the short story collection, A Lucky Man. He'll give a virtual reading on April 14th, 2021 as a guest of the U of O's creative writing program. Thanks so much for watching.